0: Welcome back. We continue today my mini-series on love and romance, which if I had a choice, it would probably not be a mini series. We probably need a season or two, uh, maybe a few years to explain everything around it. Uh, but I'm trying to bring you a variety of views because it is a very complex topic and we've oversimplified it to sort of dating techniques and pick up lines and all of that weird stuff that humanity normally does to just get a shortcut. Love and romance is really all about finding a relationship that fits, and my guest today is Annie Zimmerman. Annie is a PhD, a psychotherapist. Uh, she uh, decided in 2021 to start sharing her insights from the therapy room on Instagram and on TikTok with a very clever uh, name, I would say, at your underscore pocket underscore therapist. And and really, uh, in a very interesting way, she avoids all of the clever gimmicks of love, dating, and romance, and really focuses on the uh, psychology side of it. Uh, I am an avid follower of Annie's work, and I love uh, how she delivers the messages in a no-nonsense way, if you ask me. And so I asked her, and she was kind enough to come and be my guest today on the podcast. Uh, This is going to be a conversation that might be confrontational for some of us, uh, because I'm not going to shy away to ask the tough question. But believe it or not, it's better to confront some of our issues than to end up in the wrong relationship. Uh, Annie, I'm so grateful that you joined me. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Uh, talking about relationships and love is my favorite thing to do, so I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's it's my least favorite thing. No, it, it isn't. I, <laughs> I actually, I actually love the topic, and and I have to say, it is in my personal view. There's nothing more beautiful than finding the right the right fit, but also there's nothing more painful than being. In a wrong relationship and so if you are if you'll allow me today you, you know i've been trying to write about the topic for quite some time i'm on my seventh attempt wow yes i never publish anything unless i'm convinced of it so i wrote a book called finding love six times so far i'm on my seventh attempt now and I don't know if I'll ever publish it, but I feel that the main reason why we're struggling, of course, is because the, the market, if you want, is very different than what it used to be in the 60s and 50s and so on. But also, I believe it's because of wrong advice, because we get told to behave in ways that end up bringing us... Unhappiness, uh, complexity, lack of fulfillment in our life. And so if you'll allow me, I will be asking the questions as a man, okay? Knowing and clearly telling everyone that uh, everything we talk about here applies, whether you ask it as a man, a woman, straight or gay. This is universal. Love, dating and romance is universal. Uh, But I will start with the one question that puzzles me the most. Why? Why? Do good girls date bad boys?
1: (laughs) I think every good girl will have a different um, answer, but something that I've noticed um, from my own experience, from the experience of people that I work with, is there is a pattern. When you are a good girl, you are a people pleaser, you're very careful about Coming across in the right way and making sure that everyone's happy with you. You're very attuned to performing and what people want from you and what people need from you. Um, Because I think fundamentally, you're afraid that people won't love you if you're messy or bad. This tends to come from a specific trauma pattern of not feeling like you can be your full self with your parents. You have to perform, you have to be good and well behaved, probably because you feel that your parents couldn't tolerate you being angry and upset and naughty you you must have worked out and cleverly adapted that when you're good your parents treat you better and this means that then when we go into our adult relationships we end up doing the same performance and we have this core belief that people will only love us if we're good and then we are then often attracted to the types of people who are similar to that pattern in childhood who aren't giving us consistent love so when we say bad boys Really, we mean people who are emotionally unavailable, who are inconsistent, who sometimes make us feel amazing and then stop texting or ghost or um, treat us badly. And that inconsistency for a lot of good girls or good boys probably feels quite familiar. So we're drawn to that pattern because it feels like the kind of love we experienced As a child, even though we might know on paper that it's not good for us, we're still drawn because on an unconscious level, as humans, we're driven to repeat our childhood relationships until we heal them.
0: We're driven to repeat our childhood relationships. That's actually quite interesting. Why do I frequently date women that are draining? What childhood relationship would that stem from?
1: what draining relationships did you experience
0: draining either being very needy being very jealous being very Mm -hmm. attention seeking being unable to give me the space that i need i mean my life as a corporate executive was very demanding but my life as a creative has that has those peaks and troughs in it where Mm. you end up in uh, waking up at 3am wanting to write something and that doesn't come with, you know, uh, going to parties or whatever. So basically the demand on, on the change of my life so that I become a lot more available at times where I can't, not giving me the space, not giving me the, you know, I mean, it, it, it has been a pattern that was very clear for me in the past. I, I mm. don't know what kind of childhood relationship would lead me to want that in my life.
1: I guess I don't know your childhood relationships, but does it feel familiar in any way to something you experienced before of, a, of someone who was draining or who was demanding of you?
0: Hmm. My parents were quite cool, actually. <laughs> I don't, und- mm. I don't know. I mean, it could, it could be, it could be more of my, I don't know. I mean, this is not a therapy session, but I'm, I'm wondering mm. what, why, because the, the other side of the question is why do men, sometimes date difficult women or gold diggers or the B word or whatever, right?
1: Mm, it's really difficult. Um, I think we all have the propensity to get into relationships with someone who doesn't treat us well. And often that's coming from the part of us that doesn't believe we deserve something better and something kinder. Something I've, I've observed in my own life is that when I'm seeing somebody else as needy and demanding... I actually am disowning my own neediness and my own sense of wanting connection and wanting things from people. So often, when that's a pattern, we might select people like that because we're actually not owning our own ability oh, to be capacity to be
0: needy. That's interesting. So, so basically, we are we are sort of we're sort of not allowing ourselves to to need to to express our needs. That that could probably be a bit of me in a very interesting way that I can mm. be a lot more of a giver than a taker if you think about it. Right. Oh, that's a childhood pattern. There you go. Always a <laughs> giver. Giver is a is a very big title there.
1: Really? How did you give?
0: Oh, I, I, I always, I mean, I ask for very little in life, but I always will give whatever I have. I mean, that's definitely, and I don't regret that. I don't ever plan to change that. But even to people I don't know, I think I'll probably receive 400 Instagram messages saying that saying I, I need your money, whatever, uh, you know, in the next week after this podcast. But but I do, uh, you know, get quite a bit of joy from giving, yeah?
1: Mm-hmm. But I think this is really common with people who are, who are care in a caring kind of role that they are so good and get so much pleasure and joy from giving, but they don't know how to ask. And it's a really common pattern I see in like an avoidant. I don't know how much you know about attachment theory, but you have the avoidant who is, feels always demanded upon and, denies their own needs and then the anxious who has lots of needs and is quite demanding and these two find each other because they are making up for what the other one lacks and the avoidant person actually it feels like when you're feeling avoidance it feels like the anxious person is just demanding all your time and wanting so much more of you than you're able to give but actually often they become more anxious by being with you because you're projecting your neediness onto them so too much, get anything out of balance leads to relationship disharmony. So too much giving and not enough asking leads to an imbalance where you feel really demanded upon, but you're also not really getting anything back.
0: Let's cover those attachment styles. I mean, I, I would be surprised if anyone doesn't know them, but maybe some of our listeners wouldn't. So there is avoidance, there is anxious. And what were the other two?
1: Then there's um, fearful avoidant, which is a exactly, kind of a combination yeah. of both, and then yeah. secure.
0: Se- exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So explain those a little bit. So se- secure. There is secure attachment styles and fearful um, attachment styles, and then avoidant and anxious. Or how does it work?
1: So that so it's kind of on a spectrum, like a cross.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: one spectrum is anxious, and one spectrum is avoidant. Okay. Um, so if you're high in both anxious and avoidant, you end up as a fearful avoidant. Um, uh, but fundamentally, okay. attachment style is, is really, and this has been shown in so much research and evidence, it's formed in your first kind of two to five years of life based on the way that you respond, your parents respond to you. The idea is that if your caregivers are always present emotionally and physically, you learn to predict that people will be there for you and you feel much more comfortable and secure in your relationships, and those people tend to go on to have much more secure adult romantic relationships and friendships. If your parent is inconsistent, so sometimes they're present and other times they're not, sometimes they're really warm, sometimes they're cold, that inconsistency creates anxiety for the baby, and they learn that if they turn up their emotions a bit more and seek get that niche, attachment yeah. more that they get their needs met. So that's the anxious attachment, someone who is a bit more clingy, for example, or a bit more needy. Um, we use that as kind of derogative, but really it's a way of getting that attachment need met is to cry a bit more or to ask for things and, and demand more of the person. And then if your parent um, it just really fails to show up for you and just really isn't present that much. um, you develop avoidance, which is where you basically just switch off your attachment needs because there's no chance of them being met. So you become hyper-independent. I don't need anybody. I can deal with this all on my own. I don't have any needs.
0: That must but be really me. underneath. That absolutely must be me. I remember my parents were constantly uh, wonderful in every possible way, I think, but... But I, I definitely am completely independent. You know, it would be mm-hmm. wonderful to have someone around, but you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a big deal if I don't.
1: Mm. And how does that impact your relationships? Do you think?
0: Yeah, I become very picky. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the beginning, I mean, remember my 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 love story started with my marriage, twenty seven years of to one to a wonderful woman, and and then you know you go go through those phases where you have no experience whatsoever. And so you end up in a very, um, tricky place, uh, very quick, very quickly, very often, very repeatedly. And, uh, yeah. And then with experience, you start to learn to be very picky. So most of the time I break up before I even date. So, you know, it's like, Oh, you're wonderful. Oh my God, you're so sexy, but not for me. Right. And I think that kind of, um, I don't know. I I think I prioritize my sanity over my uh, need for a companion. If, you know, un- mm-hmm. unless I find the right companion, which every now and then happens, it's really not worth my uh, my effort basically.
1: Mm. So what we, is it? Are we, that are drives we doing therapy in front
0: of hundreds of thousands of people?
1: <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> but I think only we are. if you want to. Maybe you should be asking me the questions. I fall too easily into I just get really interested. Um yeah. in are, we, are you gonna charge yeah.
0: me at the end, Annie? Oh yeah. <laughs> Good. <always. laughs> Good. Good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is free fee. <laughs> <laughs> are we are we saying that? It's always a result of childhood.
1: I don't like to be a a cliche as a therapist um, because I think our present experiences are just as important as our childhood experiences. And some people come to therapy and they need to talk about the relationship they're in. Um, But almost always, you can map back patterns eventually to things that happen in those early years. They might not be hugely traumatizing. They might be very small things like mum going back to work you know, that's a very normal thing that happens, but for a baby, they lose their primary attachment figure. So it doesn't always have to be a big trauma, but often, more often than not, I believe that your your childhood patterns absolutely shape your adult relationships. So to or, in order to understand what's happening in your relationships, it's so helpful to map back and to understand where it's come from, because then you can realize unconsciously what it is you're drawn to, why, and then how to do something differently.
0: So give, give me a few examples. So we spoke about, you know, the attachment to the parents lead to the attachment style as an adult. What other yep. childhood experiences should people reflect on to try and understand how they behave in a relationship?
1: Yeah, that's a really good example. I think um, your role in the family system is the really good one. Um, so we talked about good girls and bad boys, um, but, you know, you have often in sibling roles as well, you have the good one and the bad one or the the responsible one and the misbehaving one. Or if you had to look after your parents' feelings quite a lot, you might end up going into relationships looking after everybody else, um, which means you don't necessarily get looked after and you can't take up space or you might have taken up, you know, you might have been the golden child and taken up a lot of space and then you have to learn to let other people kind of come in and have um, their feelings and learn to make yourself a bit smaller to create space for somebody else. Um, So I think knowing your role in the family is really helpful and and really just understanding how you learn to communicate. So you know, we talk a lot about communication in adult relationships, but if you come from a family where nobody ever talked to each other, that's going <laughs> to feel really terrifying, mm-hmm. really scary. And you're not even going to know how. So it will be a big part of your growth and healing is to learn how to just tell someone how you're feeling or do that in a kind way. Or if you grew up with parents who just argued with each other, you know, observing your parents' relationship um, or any kind of significant relationships you were around as a kid, that is, your blueprint for how relationships happen and often we just model our parents relationships so I see this a lot with people who um who yeah who are big fighters and big arguers if you come from a household where everyone just screamed at each other and that's how you communicated you're gonna go and do that because that's what you know and you're gonna come up with a bunch of problems because you don't actually get to resolve problems you were never taught how to repair ruptures that happen in a relationship which is, I think, one of the essential tools of a healthy 100%. relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: How do we use this knowledge? Do we use it to work on ourselves or do we use it also to, to select a partner? I mean, it's quite interesting when you think about when I'm writing, I do a lot of informal surveys among friends and people I meet and readers and followers and so on. And, and, and you know, when I, I ask a lot of people, what are you looking for? right? So mm. my, my current attempt on the book is, is, a, is a dating guide for straight women, right? It's not mm. uh, because I, I, you know, I attempted to create a general thing many times and it, it just didn't work. And uh, it, you know, it's very difficult to include all the different intricacies. And so, you know, when I ask women, what are you looking for? I will tell you openly, I've never had someone that told me I'm looking for a partner that doesn't have childhood traumas. <laughs> uh, but, but but it seems from what you're saying that probably, uh, regardless of the color of their eyes and their height and their financial income and what have you, uh, just not having childhood trauma solves the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I think so. But, you know, there are also people who've faced immense trauma and who've been able to grow hugely from it and who might even be a better suited partner because they're able to, they, they know pain and they're able to empathize with you and they're able to to share and be vulnerable. Come on, so I, had,
0: I had hope for a second, Annie. Now you're saying no, that, that wouldn't work.
1: I, as a therapist, I'm not supposed to give any rules or I don't
0: feel <laughs> it's right to give rules. So that, that's, saying- That's the part yeah. about therapists I like the least, by the way, because because you <laughs> yes. know the answer. So you might as well just throw it out there. I'm not going to sue you.
1: <laughs> I don't yeah I do I know the answers. I know how to ask the questions. Um I don't think there are any answers. I think you could find someone with the perfect childhood who's not well suited to you. And you could find a very traumatized person who's an excellent partner. Um so I think you know asking on a first date, "Oh, did you have a childhood trauma?" and that means <laughs> Exactly. That What's a good match? Is probably not. Your yeah.
0: Actually yeah. why why first date at all? I just I should just send her to you you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly you to be honest one
1: criteria is have you had therapy which i think for a lot of people is a sign that someone is open that they've worked on themselves that that might be a good start if you're looking for a, the kind of partner who's able to to be self-reflective and communicate
0: so so, so, so let's keep keep in in that space of uh, of what we're looking for what what should we look for
1: it's an impossible question for me to answer because I think there's there's what we're consciously looking for and there's what our unconscious is looking for. And these two often aren't looking for the same things. They're often in conflict. So a lot of people that I know are looking for a big love, right? They're looking for a healthy relationship with someone who chooses them, who has the same values as, as them, who they're attracted to who they can share a life with. And then what they actually keep going for is someone who um, doesn't text them back or sometimes ghosts them or treats them badly or makes them feel small or, you know, doesn't have the same values as them and has a different plan for the future from them. Um, So I think what you're looking for is all well and good. You know, we all come with these lists of, green flags and red flags and you can be really intentional with who you're looking for if your unconscious unconscious is much more powerful than your conscious if your unconscious is trying to look for um a partner who resembles your parents or or is looking for some sort of pattern that you keep going for over and over again um it's much more interesting to me to try to understand what your unconscious motives are, so mm-hmm. that you can start to change them, and then you can find a partner who's in line with what your conscious mind wants. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's it's almost impossible because it is called subconscious, right? You you don't you don't mm. really know. I mean, one of my my best best friends, and, and who was a guest on this podcast, an, an incredibly successful, attractive, incredibly purpose driven, and intelligent woman yeah, she ends up in horrible relationships, uh, you know, and she spends money on them. And, you know, they're like truly bloodsuckers in every possible way. And then every, mm-hmm. almost predictably every few months, she will text me and say, Mo, I can't take that anymore. And I'm like, yes, darling, that you should have never taken it at all. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that keeps repeating in a in a very mm-hmm. interesting way and she's aware of it and most of right. most of yeah most of my dear friends who struggle with relationships are aware of it i am aware of i should not be with someone that drains me right uh, but then you know it's very difficult to get a step deeper and say oh hold on here is my exact siffing criteria. And here is my exact Mm. list of mistakes that always put me in that corner.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. Can you start to kind of question what your unconscious motivations might be for picking someone, if that's a pattern?
0: I think for most of the, for most of my friends, uh, they end up with the, the answer of like you know it's a it's a very vicious cycle, right? You you get into a relationship, it's all very exciting, chemistry plays a very big role. Then you know you find someone who's really. At the beginning, romance and passion re- simulate what love is supposed to be. And then you end up drained, 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 and then you end up in a breakup. And then you take a few months off. And after a few months off, you feel a little lonely. And so you jump in again mm-hmm. and you get, you start the same pattern again. I mean, one of my, the most eye-opening experiences of my life was when I became a monk for nine months hoping to do it again, hopefully uh, next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really amazing because I'm, I don't follow rules, right? So it's not like I went to a monastery and war, wore robes and so on. I, I became a monk by defining a few things that I will remove from my life and a few things that I will add. And one of them was, um, you know, um, basically, uh, sexual uh, encounters in any form and, and, I went on platonic dates, and oh my god, the clarity I mm. had at that time was just incredible. What was like, the difference? The the difference is I had I had I had no expectation whatsoever, regardless of how attractive and cute and I mean, you know how wonderful you women are. So you know, you end up you end up in front of someone, and I think the reality is when you're in that dating situation, you you're sort of looking for everything wonderful about her uh, mm. of, you know ignoring the red flags because there is so much wonderful to enjoy mm. and then and then you know when i when i was a, a monk you know june was the time frame so yes uh, i would still i would still be looking for the wonderful things about her in the first couple of times we meet but the fir- but by the third time because june is still several months away I go like, oh my God, I, how could I have ever lived with those red flags, right? And it's mm. quite interesting when you, when, you, when you remove that idea of, yeah, I need someone in my life and replace mm. that with, I need the right one in my life and I won't accept any other way, uh, that you become a lot clearer around who you can let into your life.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think one of the things about modern dating is there's so much fear that stops people being able to act on and really hold that question of, but is this person the right person? Because they're so afraid of not finding anybody at all. So they end up, you see the red flags. How can that be?
0: How can that be? I mean, when you really look at the dating environment, there there is so much on supply. Mm, But we're in a scarcity
1: mindset, I think. Where the the way that dating apps have been set up, it's um, although it feels like there's this this almost infinite pool of people, it also feels um, that you are completely you can just be tossed away. Um, So the stakes feel higher. Mm. People are much people are settling less, and I think that creates a scarcity because anyone you're with, there's a fear that this person is just going to go out and find someone better because there's an infinite pool out there. So I think that creates a real fear of abandonment and a fear of rejection also that, that you're just going to be left and mm. so they'll find somebody else.
0: So so how what does that trigger? It triggers uh like that idea of it's not June. I need to lock them down within the next three days. Exactly.
1: Yeah, like, oh, I found somebody with one with some wonderful traits. There are some red flags. <laughs> My intuition is saying maybe they're not gonna be right for me, but I need to cling on because they might leave me. They might find somebody else Mm. and I might not find it. It's really also about that self-esteem and that, that in a knowing that you're going to find somebody, a lot of people are just so terrified that they're not good enough that no one will ever love them. That as soon as someone with some wonderful traits shows them interest, they kind of settle out of fear of not Mm. finding anything better or not, not like holding hope for themselves of a love that really is meeting all of their needs.
0: Yeah, believe it or not, that was the core of what I'm building my book on finding love. Basically, right. the, the economics of it. The economics of it is that the almost certain way to not find someone is to extend your cycle time from one date to eight months. Right. <laughs> so, so because in reality, if if you just take the the randomness of throwing the dice as uh, as basically what you're gonna get on the next date. The idea is that you're eventually going to get double six, but you have to throw the dice enough times. And every mm. if, if, the, if the cycle duration of every time you throw the dice is eight months, uh, which is, you know, we meet, we go on dates, we fall in love, we, you know, we break our hearts, we separate, we take some time for quarantine, and then we start again. That eight months is optimistic. Then, by definition, how many eight months do you have in your life, and how many eight months later will you be, you know, deflated and disappointed, and you know, and settling or or angry?
1: It's a really it's a really interesting point, and I'm going to ask you or talk about something maybe this that is challenges
0: podcast, that. I do. Annie, this is my podcast, Ani. This <laughs> is my podcast. I should be asking. It is,
1: but I have, I, um, it made me think of your, I guess, theory or ethos of playing video games and playing a video game, not just to get to the end and reach the goal of winning, but to explore and to, to improve your skills and to be curious and to play. And I think if we go into relationships thinking, okay, I have to find the one, the end goal, I'm just going to go on lots of first dates. Yeah. Whereas, okay, the eight months, yes, you're losing time, but in that time you may, may enjoy yourself. You might also learn some things. You might experience different people, but in a deeper way, and and learn what you don't like. So I Sanity think
0: Sanity at last. Sanity <laughs> at last. Did you guys hear this? Okay, so 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 I'll I'll say this again, huh? Uh, one of the biggest challenges in my view, and, and Annie has just confirmed that, is that we are treating love and romance as what we see in Hollywood. That success is defined as I found the right one and he or she stayed for a lifetime. And mm. we you know, we held hands when we we're seventy-three. Yes, we're done, objective achieved. But uh, you know, could it be that the objective of love is to love? Could it be that the objective of dating is to date? More interestingly, and you're so spot on, could it be that the objective of frequently meeting many people is to know exactly who you are and what you're looking for? And could it be that there is a skill that you need to learn so that when the actual Mm -hmm. right person shows up, you manage to keep them. You manage to understand what they need. Okay, I summarized what you said. Now expand on it, Annie, please. Well,
1: no, I, I'm I'm completely agree with you, and I think I talk about this in my my book. It's about
0: well, reframing it's what out? success. Is. Uh, J- January eleventh.
1: January eleventh. Yeah, it's your pocket therapist. What, one 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 yeah. one.
0: Was that a deliberate choice? Uh, No, it wasn't, but that's an angel number, isn't it? It really is an angel number. and lucky. And uh, (laughs) and is is it available to pre-order now, by the way? Um, Yes, it
1: will be at the end of September,
0: yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're recording a tiny bit before end of September, but by the time you guys hear this it probably is about time to pre-order so look for exactly. uh, your pocket therapist I think it's a yeah very, but it's it's
1: all book. about uh, a guide for mental health but also for relationships and dating um and really condensing kind of deep and complex complex topics um into a kind of pockety bite-sized easy to digest way and I talk about what failure and success look like in relationships and yes. because as you say, this Hollywood, You have to find the one, you have to get married, you have to have kids and be with them forever. That's that's success and anything else is a failure. And I think we have this idea that if you date someone for eight months or a year and then you break up, you failed because you haven't achieved that long term love. But it's not a very present in the moment way of living life because you've loved for a year. And yes, sometimes it might have been painful and they might have not been the right person for you long term. But in that year, I'm sure there were lots of beautiful, cherishing moments. And you might have just learned a lot about yourself and what you want. And you might have experimented with communicating or um, learned that you need to learn to communicate. And anything that happens in that year of failure is actually growth and is actually probably... um, been successful in some ways if you reframe what success in relationships means
0: yeah it is that's such a beautiful way of looking at it so i, I actually openly I, I wrote that in one of the drafts of, of uh, finding love that that i've married nibel uh, and you know loved nibel for 27 years as my uh, plus one if you want and you know does that count as failure that we broke up Absolutely not, you know. I I recorded uh, my uh, episode with Matthew Hussey with uh, Shelley uh, in the room, which is truly a soulmate for me, an ex now, but a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience in my life, wonderful view of a world that I never understood, you know. And and it's really quite interesting with everyone. I, I wouldn't want to mention every name, but almost everyone that came into my life, made me the person that you know today, right? Made mm-hmm. me realize things about me, made me realize things about others, the people that I attempt to teach, made made me realize something about love itself. And isn't that amazing when you really think about it? But, mm-hmm. but the problem, Annie, is that especially women, probably more than men, will say, But hold on, you know I have biological clock. I have pressure. I need other things, and I need a child, and I need a family, and I need security. And life is annoying. And you know someone needs to be there so that when things go wrong, and change the light bulb, and and all of that stuff. So so what what would be your answer to that?
1: I guess that if those things are your priority, then it's absolutely right to date with those intentions. But. I and I guess it depends on your age and stage I know that I've been desperate to find my long-term partner father of my kids since I was 18 (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I've been in this fear space even when I was in my early 20s um because I was so terrified of not finding the one and I think those those um those longer term goals of I need to find someone I need to settle down can really stop you from just enjoying yourself and experimenting and playing the video game in the way that uh, is more playful. Um, However, when you get into your later thirties, for example, and if you want to find a, someone to have a child with, your perspective absolutely shifts. So I don't think it's right to say, oh, everyone should just, you know, date and be in the moment because there are realities of life. And I understand that panic and that fear that I guess, especially women of a certain age have. However, I also think that there's nothing scarier than being in the wrong relationship and staying in it. Mm. And that as well as exploring with different people, it's also really important to know when to leave, even if that is in conflict with your longer-term desires. I see a lot of people in their late 30s who are staying in relationships that aren't right for them because they are so desperate to have a child, which I totally understand, Um, but they're not happy. So I think happiness should prevail over everything. And if ultimately you end up doing things at a later age from what you want, but that enabled you to find a relationship that's better for you, then we shouldn't be motivated by these time frames because I think they can really hold us in a kind of prison.
0: Did you believe that? So you said happiness is, is the primary target in a relationship. Uh, or one-off, I, I know that you probably mean one-off, but uh, but let's talk about happiness itself. Do you believe that happiness is sustainable over a long time? I mean, one of the things I wrote about again and didn't publish is that the idea that the dream that Hollywood and Bollywood and Disney, an establishment that I refer to in my work as Dizzy Wood, mm-hmm. they, what, the dream they sell to you ends at the first kiss. And it's quite mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. when you really think about it because everyone who's ever been a real, in a real relationship understands the real work starts after the first kiss, right? Right. And, and, and so the question then is, is it an achievable target at all to find someone that you can be happy with over the long term?
1: I don't know. Happiness is a feeling, isn't it? It's It's, yeah, it's something that can fear. be fleeting. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that a relationship can be the sole source of happiness in your life if you yourself are not content in who you are and in your your aspirations and your daily life. I think we need to be, you know, Esther Perel talks about this. She writes a lot about love and relationships. And uh, she talks about how one of the struggles with modern dating and modern love is that we're looking for one person to fill all of our needs that used to be filled by community and a village. And now we're looking for one person who can be both our, you know, our best friend and our financial partner and live together and talk to her about all of our problems and hang out with all of the time and have sex with and raise a family with, which used to be needs that were split into different people and different communities. But now we now need one person for that, which is an impossible ask. So I, I think when we think about happiness in those terms, we need to find happiness in our own lives. And it's such a cliche, you know, you can't love someone else before you love yourself which I don't necessarily agree with because I I think we do heal through relationships too and I think relationships can provide a huge amount of happiness um, and security which is really a lot of the the things that a relationship provides that other things can't is that security and stability but ultimately we need to um be content in ourselves in order to be able to take nourishment from a good relationship otherwise it will never feel like enough and it will never fill that void and that hole in us if we're using the relationship like a vampire to just you know feed off yeah so so, I think it's I think happy, yeah, happiness is maybe the wrong way to think about things. I guess a relationship should provide a sense of safety first and foremost, and security and together and connection and vulnerability. And if you have those kind of fundamental foundations, you can co-create a happy life, I think, largely happy life.
0: But my question would be, would that last forever? i'm I'm trying to assess as an as an annoying, blunt engineer, if the dream is actually valid to start,
1: mm. what long love that lasts forever?
0: I think love lasts forever. Uh, I think love mm. lasts before you before you meet and after you leave, but. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was one very complex chapter that I had to, to scrap from, ch- from attempt number five, which was what I called the the spiritual field theory, an analogy between quantum physics at a very deep level of understanding of quantum field theory, to try and say that love existed even before you were born. Your love for everyone that you were going mm. to love always existed. You just tuned into it at the right moment. And it will always exist even if you try to shut it down. Love always mm-hmm. exists, but but I think relationships. I mean, I, I I I openly say that I fell in love with Nibel, my ex-wife, many times, six times to be very specific, right? Mm-hmm. But I fell in love with a different person every time, and and it's mm-hmm. you know it's almost and and we broke up when when the seventh time didn't work, right? But uh, mm-hmm. but the idea is that is it even possible to keep renewing that lease over and over that way?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it is for some people and it is, it isn't for others. I think a lot of people stay in relationships for their whole lives and they're miserable Correct. and we call this success and then other people get divorced and remarry and remarry again and remarry again and and find different loves. And we call this, we judge this, don't we? We call this failure. Mm -hmm. So I don't think rules or any sort of time scale for a relationship to you know, it doesn't matter how long it lasts, as long as it's giving you something that you're benefiting from right now. You know, if you break up, that. if you get together at 20 and you break up at 60 and you end up divorcing, obviously that's really painful. But that doesn't mean the relationship wasn't worth being in for that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, Esther Perel herself also speaks about that, the the two sides of us, you know, the need for adventure and the need for stability and how those two compete. Right. And yeah, and, and, and the idea that, uh, once again, I mean, my, 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 I think the reason why I kept uh, cancelling uh, finding love is is because I'm so blunt that it upsets people who are fragile, and the idea, honestly, is that we have to admit that each and every one of us goes through that flip flop of, I want someone for a long-term in a stable relationship. It doesn't have to be mm. too exciting, but it can, it should be safe and reliable and so on. And then, ooh, look at that one, she's cute. You know, I want I want adventure. I want to go and feel that romantic rush once mm. again, I, right? And by the way, when I say she, it also applies to many of mm-hmm. my lady friends, you know, my women friends. Who, who will tell you? Yeah, I'm, you know, I love my partner or I love my husband, but I think you know I'm in my early 30s or mid 30s, and I want to live life and I want to explore and I want to see this and all right. and and it's quite an interesting struggle, almost by design of our DNA that that we just keep keep flipping back and forth, which Mm. sort of at the beginning sort of felt like a Gemini for me because I'm a Gemini. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, no, that's almost everyone.
1: Yeah. It made me think of polyamory. And I guess previously there's only been two ways to do a relationship. You're either together and you're monogamous or you're uh you're having an affair basically mm. um or you're, and you're not together or eventually you're not together i think polyamory and there are many different arguments and i'm not entirely sure where i my stance is yet um but it can provide a different solution to this problem where you can oh, have you'll, security
0: you'll you they'll attack you like they attacked my early readers attacked the book <laughs> but keep going
1: Oh, well, you, yeah, and I, and I understand it's really threatening. And I understand for a lot of people, it's very triggering, the idea of being in a polyamorous relationship. And it's not for everyone. But for some people who really struggle, who want the security, but also really struggle with commitment and struggle to choose only one person, there is a different solution, which is something a bit more flexible. And that can be different for everybody, but something where both of those needs can be met, both security and adventure, as you said.
0: You'll be amazed how many of those models are out there. So so again, just because I'm a hyper-organized engineer, I, I, I searched, right? And it's so interesting that the same people that will tell you, oh, I'm, I'm disgusted that someone would even be able to touch me and then touch someone else, you know, hooked up with 20 people when they were in their mm. 20s. Right. Okay. And, and you know, I'm, I don't mean that, by the way, hooking up is a bad thing. If, if your objective when you're in your 20s is to explore and learn and... Find out about yourself, great. If, if your reason is insecurity and constant need for reassurance, then hold on, something is wrong. There's nothing inherently mm. right or wrong about any relationship style. But I listed the number of relationship styles that are highly acceptable, believe it or not, more successful than the traditional model. And it's staggering. It's staggering mm-hmm. how, I mean, mm-hmm. so think about it this way. Statistically, people under the age of 30, 75% of the people under the age of 30 had some kind of a friends of, with benefit a relationship that they considered successful, okay? 75% versus 50% that opt out of marriage is actually saying that that re- relationship is considered a wonderful relationship by more people than those who are actually experiencing the traditional relationship. And the examples, the number, I had a a friend of mine who was married and loves his wife and then realized he was bisexual. And she basically said, okay, you can, you don't, you don't touch any other woman, but you're free to do Mm -hmm. whatever you want with men. And I'm like, hold on. There are situations where, relationships start to become defined based on the couple's needs and I think that rigidity of no no there is one way to what they call skin the cat yeah it Mm -hmm. it is is causing a lot of challenges because a lot of people are trying to fit something within a, a mold when it's really not designed for the mold sometimes
1: Right. And I think I see it a lot in young people who are dating and they think, oh, well, there are all these rules and only if the relationship is adhering to the rules um, is it going well. So they have they have to be exclusive by a certain time and they have to be in a relationship by a certain time and then, oh, it's too soon to meet the parents or it's too fast to move in together or too soon to, you know, it's been two years so we should be living together. You know, all of these rules and it just stops you from being able to be in it and feel what's right for you and that person. Um And I think monogamy can be the same. It's a rule that we've all just... I am monogamous. For me, it doesn't work. Um For me, I find polyamory makes me feel insecure in my relationship and that's fine but I think that we've all just accepted monogamy as a rule for relationships but for many people it doesn't work and I think that's another reason why you know there's people... Who've been together for a long time might end up breaking up because there's no other solution to this problem. Whereas I think that you're at the example of your friend, it's a different way of thinking about something that might enable them to have a, dif- a relationship that lasts longer and still nourishes each other whilst their needs, their other needs are being met. Um, so I think staying open minded and non judgmental on this is a way to have more creative relationships that update over time rather than just staying stuck and then you become unhappy because your needs change or your life changes and the relationship doesn't grow.
0: Do, do you think there is a cycle that if we miss, it becomes beyond uh, saving? So so it's quite interesting that the couples that, that I surveyed or had a conversation with that spotted a change in their being, in their own design over time, because we all change over time and then started to work on it early are the ones that continue to enjoy a very connected relationship. But of mm. course, Honestly, very few do that, and when they and when they miss that, and you know, start to argue and then start to not feel connected to each other and so on. Do you think it's it's possible to repair what has been brewing for a very long time?
1: Yeah, I think repair is essential for for a healthy relationship. Hmm. I think if you crumble at the first problem or a rupture and you're not able to both grow together and communicate and work on what's come up you're much less likely to grow together in the relationship i don't think will work
0: are you a couple therapist
1: i'm not no but i would love to be um because i think a lot of before
0: before you make that wish do you (laughs) do you know of any couple therapy that ever worked
1: um, yes, I do. Well, define work. If the couple, don't, like the, if know, the couple they, decide they, to split up, has it worked?
0: They, they, they met the therapist and then they went back home and, and went, oh my God, I missed you so much. I forgot everything that you ever said. You're amazing. Let's start over.
1: I'm not sure forgetting everything would would mean that it's worked, <laughs> but I, I absolutely think that you can work through problems together. But,
0: but by the way, a disclaimer here, I'm just being uh, uh provoking, okay? Uh yeah, therapy works. Go go ahead, Anya. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> but have have you found couple's therapy hasn't worked?
0: So again, the blunt, blunt, blunt engineer in me will say that the percentages, the ratios of success are actually quite staggering, right? Uh, it, it, of course, it depends on when you go for therapy. Huh? If if you're so in love and something is not functioning and, you know, you go and work on it, then amazing, right? You need ad- external advice. Sometimes, by the way, just by talking to a reasonable friend, it's a, like a subset of couple therapy, right? But to, both of you talking openly, both of you seeking mm. advice, both of you trying to make it work, but wait three years of fighting and, you know, and try to go and, and reverse it. Yeah, the ratios of success, you know, the probability mm-hmm. of success, of course it's possible, but it it's really, really low, uh, low, you know stakes if you think about it and and the way, the reason I say this is because I, I I actually tell tell people frequently don't let problems grow into massive mm-hmm. mountains because right. you know normally the trigger is just one thought or one behavior or one sentence mm-hmm. that was said and then give right. it 3 years to brew and you end up with like 400,000 mountains of issues
1: exactly what i think needs to happen from really early on and couples therapy I guess can help with this again if it's early enough is if if you don't talk about how you're feeling you act on those behaviors so let's say you said a sentence that annoyed me and then I went off in a huff and I was giving you the silent treatment or I was passive-aggressive towards you and started uh, you know picking you about not doing the dishes all of this behavior wouldn't happen if I said actually that sentence really hurt me that made me feel really upset yeah and that stops all of the kind of marital classic issues that we see in relationships where you're arguing about something so small that's not really about the thing or people are angry and yeah these resentments that build up over time I think if couples together can learn to deal with the ruptures as and when they happen in a really open vulnerable way it stops a lot of the the enactments happening again the same for affairs I think often we demonize affairs and I get why because it comes from it causes a huge amount of pain and ultimately it it can probably be avoided but if the affair is coming from resentments and hurt and things that aren't being expressed this could be dealt with in a different way by really just talking about the problem and talking about how you feel which is very basic but it is also very terrifying for a lot of people.
0: I I think the way you described it is so beautiful. It's so wonderful to just simply tune into yourself and say, hey, I feel grumpy. Why do I feel grumpy? It's not because he didn't make the dishes. Uh, It's because he looked at the butt of that lovely girl when she was crossing the street or whatever. Okay. And now that I know what I feel, can I find a, a way to express this openly and say, hey, by the way, I'm not blaming you here, but this hurt me a little bit, okay? And explain how you feel and then just went, go into that conversation. It is very difficult, mainly, I think, because people are not aware what's triggering them, but also- Exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. so the, the kind of main ethos in my book is get curious. So when you have a reaction that feels disproportionate, you know, you're suddenly really angry they haven't done the dishes, instead of blaming them and focusing on them, just getting curious and thinking what is it that's happened here and most of the time you might not even know but if you start reflecting enough times you'll think oh okay what's happened today what was the trigger moment and that's why it's getting to know yourself and doing the work on yourself that makes you a better partner because if you know how you feel which is a very hard thing for many people and you know what's triggered you then you can start to stop taking it out on the relationship. But as you said, for many people, they really actually don't know what's been triggered or how they're feeling.
0: Yeah. Is, is there a way to actually instruct people or, or skill people in doing that? And, you know, t- taking that pause and actually understanding why mm, something's triggering them?
1: I think it, it has to be retrospective to start with, that you'll, you'll have the overreaction, you'll have the behavior, and then you'll think, afterwards hang on a second what might that have really been about this is the kind of thing you talk about in therapy or with your partner after after the fight you know trying kind of like post-match analysis of what really happened then and then hopefully if this happens enough times then you can start to bring that clarity and awareness in that moment of wait a second but before you react so you start to feel yourself getting really angry about the dishes but this time you have enough self-reflection and it's happened enough times that you know this is probably about something else. So just taking a minute to think, what's this really about before you shut out? But it's a very like emotionally advanced skill in order to to, to be able to do that. And it does take a lot of self work, I think.
0: Yeah. I remember a phase in my uh, marriage uh, where Nibel, I tend to have a very high level of self-discipline, especially if it hurts someone. So, you know, she wasn't feeling very happy. And I started to say, so just tell me what you want me to change. And I'm very effective at changing it. and for a, for a while, probably a couple a couple of years, every now and then she would say, "I got it, Change this, and I'll be happy, right? And so overnight, I will change it. And you know, I wouldn't ever do it again. I would do it differently if i if I do something that is in line with what she said was annoying her, I would immediately recognize it and say, "I'm really sorry. I know that you told me not to do this." And then a month later she would say, Hold on, I'm I'm still unhappy. Do that, and it's going to make mm-hmm. me happier. And and I remember, I don't I don't blame her. By the way, I actually think that a long marriage is the best school on earth to to act, to work on relationships because you know I I loved that woman very dearly. I still love her, and you know, and in a, in a very interesting way, being stuck in that partnership with two wonderful kids and Mm. with my rejection for unhappiness. So it wasn't like, let's just stay for the kids, but, you know, let's work on things uh, as we stay for the kids. Mm. You know, it just shows you, and I don't blame her at all for those attempts she was trying, but it is exactly what you're describing. You you sort of, it becomes very difficult to know exactly what's annoying you. Mm. And and by the way, sometimes what's annoying you is within you. It's not even because of the behavior. Well, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think it can be just incompatibility. I've done this before myself where I've blamed partners for things, Mm. um, different things It changes every week. There's this problem and then there's this problem and this problem, but really there's just an incompatibility between us that is almost unnameable. It just doesn't, it's just not right yeah and you're trying to change the other person to make it right and you think oh, okay if they change these tan these five tangible things then they'll be right for me and they they try and change them and it's still not what you need and i think a lot of what we do in relationships because we're so desperate for it to work because we probably love this person because we don't want to confront the things that aren't going right as we try to fuse these people together and when actually there's like a huge incompatibility that's something that can't be worked upon. And sometimes it's about accepting people as they are and then deciding whether they're right for us rather than trying to change them to fit them into something different, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you the most difficult question of all? I mean, you know, just like uh, I wrote in sort for Happy, it's impossible for you and I to agree what mangoes taste like or what the color of the sky actually is. The way you see it mm-hmm. could be, the way I see the color green, right? When we say love somebody, I have, again, in my conversations and really looking deeply into myself and different phases of my life and seasons and so on, what does that word mean? Like when you say, Mm. I love somebody, is there a universally agreed thing? I mean, if we're happy in bed, does that mean love? If we're, what is it?
1: Yeah, I see this a lot on Instagram. There's a kind of quote doing the rounds, which is that love is a verb. It's a doing word. It's a choice. And love is an action. And It's an intentional way of choosing to treat somebody. But this is just one person's definition. Yeah. For other people, love is something spiritual. Love is yeah. God in their mind. Or love is a feeling. And I don't think we need to agree. I think that would be really boring if there was a standardized definition of what love means. I think love is beautiful because it is unique for each person and
0: that's a that's a wonderful answer actually. I mean we we, do, we will never agree even if we try. And um, the the reason the reason I ask though is that we sacrifice so many things in the name of that elusive, mm. unagreed thing. Mm. And you know, and, and I, I again I, I I think about it from the point of view of a woman because that's what I'm writing about. Very frequently I will go like, But he's an asshole. Leave him. Right? And she Mm -hmm. would say, but I love him. Mm. And I'm like, what does that mean when someone Mm. treats you that way? What does love him mean? You know, is is that love him or is it a little bit of I desire him and he makes me laugh and I'm afraid of being alone? Is that can that Mm -hmm. be defined as love? How can someone differentiate within their heart? Perhaps between a love that is worthy of staying, and a love that mm-hmm. is sort of an overdose of of irrationality that is based on experiences that you're unable to pin down, just like we said mm-hmm. about understanding ourselves.
1: Right, because I think in that case, it can also be attachment, which is different attachment, from love. Yeah.
0: Attachment, yeah. yeah, is that
1: need for something else and what you imagine they'll give you, and that kind of unconscious desire for... Repetition, rather than love. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think calling it love or not calling it love changes things. Because just because you love somebody, it doesn't mean you should be with them. But I think what, what, the what, idea. What, what, that what you're, did you
0: just say? <laughs> just say that. Just again.
1: because you love somebody, it doesn't mean you should be with them.
0: Did everyone hear this? <laughs> just because you love somebody doesn't mean you have to be with them. Yes, I agree. Or that you, or that you will ever be with them. By the way.
1: Mm, mm. which again comes with lots of pain leaving somebody who you love is so painful or never being with somebody who you love is so painful but ultimately it's more painful to be in a situation that is not working and maybe part of love is letting somebody go
0: so let's go back to the video game and discuss the pain side of it right Mm. i think one of the of the characteristics of the video game is that my if my avatar is shot, all I have to do is to wait a couple of seconds. It doesn't really hurt that much. Uh, and I'll play again, right? Mm. Uh, when it comes to love and romance, I think there are two sides to this. One side is we all know that eventually our hearts will ache. Hopefully not, but there is a probability, right? Mm. Uh, and in a, in, a, in a very open way, I'll say, and there is a way for you to Sort of expect that and tell yourself, but it's still worth it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to, to, to have loved and live lived and loved is better than not, not to have loved right. at all, I think. Uh, but the other side of it is the is the sense of, but the other person's heart will break because of me. Mm-hmm. If this mm-hmm. doesn't work, you know, that sense of responsibility that you're really not just playing with an avatar on a screen, there is another soul mm-hmm. in this. And that mm-hmm. other other soul will get attached and will, yes, hopefully get the same wonderful experiences that you will. But mm. her, or if you're a woman, his, uh, you know, eventual heartache might be very different because of how differently be each of you is constructed. So, so how do you encourage yourself to not be afraid to fall in love when? when there is that liability, if you want, the the, the liability of your own mm. heartache and the, and the impact you have on someone else's heartache?
1: I think we have to trust in our resilience, really, to be able to deal with the pain. And I think most of the people who really fear falling in love and fear it ending are people who have had really painful experiences of their relationships not working out or being really hurt yeah. by people or having hurt people. And I think we need to trust that we'll be okay. You know, that comes from like a survival need as a child. We need our parents. And the yeah. threat of losing your parents is a threat of death because your parents keep you alive. As an adult, even though it would be so painful to lose the most important person in your life, you will survive. And I think it's about yes. knowing that the pain won't kill you in the same way it would have as a child. And just, yeah, I, I think... You know, the question, it's like an existential question. Do we still enjoy life knowing that we're going to die? You can, you know, if you only have, let's say you're, you're going to die at the age of 30. Is it still worth living a full life? I would say yes. And it's the same as a relationship. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the same as a relationship. If this relationship is only going to last two years, yes, it will be so painful for it to end. And, but you will survive that and it might have been worth it.
0: You know, Annie, I'll say this publicly in front of everyone. You have a very interesting way of dropping very serious gold nuggets as if you're talking about pizza. It's, <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting actually, because you know this this would be the fourth or fifth time during this conversation where I say, What did you just say? Mm. Right? I mean, honestly, if you knew you were going to die, you would still live. If you knew you were going to feel some heartache, you would still love. Mm-hmm wouldn't right. you? I mean, exactly. going back to my, to my theory of, uh, of economics and the, the idea of probabilities, my recommendation is if you're single, go on two to three dates a week. Mm. Don't extend those dates if the person doesn't meet your requirements or your expectations or your hopes and wishes and beliefs and long lists and whatever. Uh, right. But the, the, the action of going out on dates is, uh, is like literally going to night school. Just to learn and understand and find, you know. But at the same time, because the joy of meeting someone new and, you know, learning about someone else's soul really is just so joyful. Mm. And so what if it's going to end up with a little bit of pain? Who cares? I mean, we should care, but it's not going to kill anyone.
1: No, and I think the more we do it, as you say, and the more you realize, okay, it hurts a bit. Maybe it hurts a lot but eventually i know that i can survive this the less scary it becomes
0: yeah oh by the way i don't follow my advice i don't go on two three dates no? a week how many no, dates no, do you go on just because i'm recording those podcasts it's like 9 p.m. here in dubai and you know <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you guys listening should know the cost of uh, of what you're uh, what you're getting here no it's it's are also... you writing
1: the manual for yourself then
0: definitely isn't that how we write mm. books Yes, Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. I mean it's quite interesting that I ended up with a dating guide for straight women. It's almost as if I'm I'm telling the world for that incredibly wonderful woman that I've been looking for who has been struggling to find love because she's been doing the wrong things. Here is the manual. Please follow mm. it and you'll find a good mm. man, right? Mm. And 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 it's, you know, it's almost a sense of anger within me that there are so many wonderful. I mean, I have to admit the dating world for a woman is very different than the dating world for a man. Uh, you know, especially if we're talking about a top quality woman or a top quality man, but quality is not attractiveness, but a, a good person, right? It still is a lot more difficult and almost threatening in a way for a woman it's more more threatening and difficult for a woman than it is for a man i think a man many men unfortunately are abusing the modern world Mm. dating environment Mm -hmm. while uh, women are being abused by it so so there is a Mm -hmm. sense of anger within me because i i really don't think that's the way it should be And as, as some men are abusing the dating environment, Jordan Peterson, I don't know where he got the statistic from, will say that most of the men that are getting most of the dates are the top 20% while the other 80% are struggling. So it's a very mm-hmm. polarized environment where so many men are suffering while so many wonderful women are available uh, but or, or struggling themselves. And it's just a, a very inefficient stock market if you think about it. How do
1: we fix this, do you think?
0: <laughs> I am really so. I, if people listen to me, I swear I I understand the economics of it. Mm. It's a, it is an inefficient market. Okay, it's an inefficient market because we end up getting the wrong information about the stock we're trying to buy. Where we end up buying it at the wrong time or buying stocks that don't match our investment needs, and and so on and so forth. When you really think about today's dating world, it is a market of abundance of supply and demand. It's very similar Mm -hmm. to the stock market. The problem is when you have a million stocks to to trade, you don't study every one of them, right? You, You just pick first and you pick what your investment strategy is first, and you pick a trading style. How do you engage with every one of those encounters? Which starts first and foremost by valuing yourself to the point where you don't accept crap. This is why I right. started this yeah. conversation with: Why do good women date bad boys?
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and I think believing that you can attract someone and are deserving of someone who hundred percent is what you need. Yeah, you said you mentioned being picky, but really that's just valuing yourself, isn't it?
0: Picky, in my view, is the is the absolute answer. Is the absolute answer, and picky does not mean I don't fall, okay? It just means that when I fall and it's not right, I don't stick,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: And, and hopefully mm-hmm. a very significant focus on not falling if I can. Right. It it's it is really that simple. I I think I think what what normally happens in very efficient in very inefficient markets is you either don't trade at all. So as I said, most people will just sit in their rooms and 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 hope that somehow Dizzy Wood is is, is right and someone is going to knock the door down with a white horse and pick them up and say, where have you been? Mm -hmm. Which is never going to happen. And by the way, when it happened to your friend Shelly, when she was on a flight and met uh, Prince Charming, they're going to start arguing in two years time anyway. So Mm -hmm. don't take that one example as the rule of life. But at the same time, opposite of that is just, we just jump in and jump in and jump in and jump Mm -hmm. in without enough due diligence on the trade.
1: Exactly. And I think being, as you said, being prepared to walk away is the biggest strength and superpower you you, you can have. You
0: speak a lot about this. Yes, I do. Why do we not, why do we, why do we stay?
1: I think we have unconscious fantasies that we can change people. We can fix people and we can finally make them into what we needed. So we find these bad guys or broken people or emotionally unavailable people. And then we stay hoping that they'll change and this will prove that we're good enough, that this will prove that Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. Finally... Look at me. I'm
0: the, I'm the witch. I'm the magician.
1: Exactly. So we're, we're putting our sense of value and our sense of lovability onto whether or not this person can show yeah. up for us when yeah. actually they're probably not capable and they never will rather than just finding someone who is capable of loving us in the way that we need. And I think being prepared to walk away from those people is how you change that pattern. But because we're in this scarcity mindset, and especially a lot of women are already afraid because of this kind of crisis in modern dating, walking away feels really scary because we imagine we might never find anyone who's interested in us again.
0: I find that impossible, honestly. I I mean, again, one of the things I always write about is there is... You know, we, we tend because of our negativity bias in our brain to look for what's wrong with us. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you look at me, there is a lot wrong with me, mm-hmm? but there is also a lot right with me. And, right. and, and, and the idea is to say for someone out there, what is wrong about me doesn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. And what is good about me is really key. And and that applies for everyone. I mean, I I hate to use that example, but if you go to porn sites, hmm, there is something for everyone. There is someone interested in skinny women, someone interested in curvy women, someone interested in grannies, like holy God, right? But there Mm -hmm. is, there is, there is every woman there is someone for, and every Mm. man there is a woman for. The question is, again, it's an inefficient market. We're unable to break through those mathematics and find the right person because of a mindset of scarcity, because of fear, or because of wrong strategy, basically wrong processing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is why Annie, nobody's going to read my book. Who wants to talk about, (laughs) who wants to talk (laughs) about? I was about to say
1: that this means your book and my book, they're going to Stop everyone from being afraid and help people. Uh, I, I find hope so. The
0: right so. So so Annie, I, wa- I, I as we spoke before, I I wanted I didn't want to talk too much about your book today because I want you to come back if you're uh, open to the idea, and then we actually speak yeah. about the book specifically, not about love and romance in general. Uh, so uh, maybe a um, Christmas or late or December conversation mm. or January conversation would be wonderful. So uh, yeah, I would love okay that. I love
1: talking to you today. I like the yeah, way you think about things. It's very different from other people, which it, is why you're... It, it,
0: it, it is working against me in that topic. It worked well in happiness <laughs> and it's working really well in stress. Unstressable is hopefully out in a few months now. Uh, but uh, yeah, that mathematical economic mindset in love and romance is... Uh, is just, uh, it's like, come on, Mo, you know, you're taking <laughs> the magic away. Uh, yes. But it's
1: also realistic. It's also exactly. true.
0: With- yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's really, really lovely to have spoken today. You're so wonderful. As I, as I said, you keep dropping gold nuggets uh, while not <laughs> noticing. So, yeah, if you guys found some of those gold nuggets, rewind and maybe listen again. I think there is a lot of encouragement in this conversation that may have passed you uh, as just uh, chit-chat. The biggest uh, ask I ask of you is if it's not working, don't stay truly and honestly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Annie. I'll see you again in a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah, I love talking to you. Yeah. And for all of you listening, I forgot for a minute that you guys were there. So don't hold my therapy session against me. And uh, <laughs> I uh, I have to say, I loved this conversation. As I said, uh, there are lots of gold nuggets, so you may want to go back and, and listen. But either way, find uh, Annie at uh, your pocket therapist, your underscore pocket underscore therapist on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, truly, she has that very unusual way of posting videos where she doesn't talk, uh, but it's always <laughs> very valuable information and I really love her work. And uh, yeah, while perhaps one of the big takeaways, while love might eventually cause you heart uh, ache, and while most of Dizzywood tells us that there is one standard traditional way of finding love, perhaps love itself is the objective, perhaps the experience itself is what refines us, what takes us through our spiritual uh, ascendance, and what Really connects us to the one thing that probably matters most, which is to be able to connect into that spiritual field theory to find love in every possible way. With that, Beautiful. yes, with that, thank you. With that, I will uh, actually ask you openly now to, you know, I normally say do that stuff that they, uh, do on social media but this time i will actually say it openly go and follow me on my youtube channel mo uh, gaudet official please follow me on instagram if you're not but also rate this podcast on your podcast player and uh, tell others about it more and more i'm starting to realize that my fatalist approach of saying my message will get to people when it's supposed to get to people is probably a little bit laid back because just by asking you to subscribe and and tell others uh, might actually impact uh, the spread, the rate of uh, of spread of that message quite significantly. So kindly do your part and uh, allow me to continue to grow this. Uh, It would make a big difference to me. And while uh, we continue to talk about love and romance, uh, this is just one topic that I think is important in your life today. Uh, Other topics require you to slow down a little bit. And I know life is busy, uh, but it doesn't really matter how uh, busy you are this week. There is always a tiny bit of time to slow down. Uh, I love you all for listening and I see you next time.